Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I, Allison, where do you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, yeah. but also parenting stuff. Yeah. So check out Childish new episodes every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone. Hi, hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Uh, Tony, who would normally be here, I would normally be making a little bit of, but not too much, just the right amount of chit chat with him, is playing drums in his rock band. He was here and then he was gone and then he came back and I welcomed him back with open arms and then he left again, but just for like two shows. So he'll be back soon. But I'm sitting here with someone I'm very excited to talk to, Elise Lunin, uh, the chief content officer at Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle and e-commerce company, Goop. She co-hosts the Goop podcast, features prominently in Goop Lab, the six-part Netflix series, which she's also an executive producer of or on. Is it executive producer on or of? I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> she has a background in magazines, having worked at Lucky, Time Out New York, then Lucky again, and then Condé Nast Traveler before making the switch to digital. She's co-authored a number of books with celebrities like Leah Michelle, Lauren Conrad, Sophia Amoruso, Ellen DeGeneres. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two sons. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be reunited. It's good to see you again. I know. It's been forever. I was trying to remember... Did I leave Time Out New York while you were still there? Or did you leave before me? I don't me? know. I was trying to figure that out, too. I left right right at the same time as Brian. Okay. So before then... Michael Friedson. Maybe you had already left. Michael before was there. He, yes. He hadn't become editor-in-chief. Okay. That was after I left then. I left in like February of 2008. Yeah. I think and then I think still there. he announced that he was leaving... Short, Farnham and so we all left at the same time. Right. And you came back here, right? And then started podcasting? I, so I left Time Out New York February of 2008. I went freelance. I went to Page Six magazine oh, immediately. Right. For, I was like filling in for someone yes. who was out. Um, and then I went freelance and started doing a show called Alice and Rosen is Your New Best Friend as a live internet streaming show and was doing like little videos and things. So I was writing, but also beginning kind of doing this in like a very uh, early form. You're such, such an early adopter. I feel very, well, see, I wanted to get into this with you. I feel very lucky that I did that because I never said magazines are dying. I need to switch. It just kind of happened in a very organic way. And I feel really lucky. What happened with you? I was, I had left Time Out New York, which was one of, which was a career highlight. I loved working there. Um, went back to Condé and then, and I went back for a dream job, which was to travel the globe and write these shopping guides. 
which is as fun and also kind of lonely. I mean, like, as you know, all of these travel trips, right. magazines sound much better than they are. Cause mm-hmm. the reality was if I were, if I, I remember going to Paris to do a guide and I walked 14 miles a day, it was winter, I was by myself, um, scouting. So I went back to do that. The, the economy blew up. And I was grounded and became a dep- the deputy editor. And we did were, they just stop having doing those guides? Just, yeah, our budgets were cut. We did some, but with with the frequency wasn't there. Um, and then I moved to Traveler and was just hyper conscious of the reality of the magazine industry and trying to whip things up online Mm -hmm. like at one point when I was still at Lucky I was like we need video and so I found this company where I could make and edit video myself and I made a hundred videos in a month by myself in a closet Um, did anyone see them (laughs) (laughs) I should look I'm sure they're still on YouTube yeah I think so Mm -hmm. but no one was paying attention I couldn't get anyone at the magazine to care I mean and as you know when you work in magazines or when you used to work in magazines, you had the luxury of creating content as a one-sided conversation and pushing it out there and being like, you're welcome. I'm sure you're going to love this. <laughs> See you next month. And the idea of going online for everyone at Condé was terrifying. It was such an afterthought. It felt so base. And I knew that that was wrong. I'm like, mm-hmm. we're missing the whole conversation. And the fact that we're not shepherding our brands online, we're damaging our brands by making this such an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Um, there really was this sense that online is in a different class and not as good. Exactly. That that like te- You want your story in print. Only in print. And that's the thing that validates it and that's the thing that's worthwhile because there's a limited number of stories that can be in a print magazine whereas online it can be infinite so it doesn't have to be the same quality that was the feeling of people who grew up in magazines i think yeah and you can also you snub your nose i mean it was so threatening if you think about it all these bloggers emerging and establishing platforms outside of all of the ways that we had mm-hmm. been, you know, trafficked up through magazine culture and tapped and anointed. And then you have all these upstarts who are just writing and right. going straight to the source and building these massive communities while the rest of us were, you know, piddling around <laughs> with copy editors or getting yelled at. What, what was his name? Noah. Noah Tarnow. Noah Tarnow. Frequent- Wikipedia is not a way to fact check your <laughs> articles. Um, I remember, did you know Mike Wolf? He was the music editor yes. when I started there. He dated Christina Dector. He did? Yes. I didn't know that. They, they had a brief love affair. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't. Wow. <laughs> it's hard. There's a lot of things about that that are curious. Yes, confounding. But anyway, I remember he said in an an edit note was check web 10. And I'm like, I'm not familiar with this website, but he meant check Webster's the dictionary. (laughs) Anyway. Wow. I did not know they dated. Okay. We're going to have to talk about that more after, uh, Go on. Yeah. So, no, I, you know, like you, was like, this is not sustainable. I'm not going to have a career. I um, have to get comfortable with the internet and I need to figure out how this thing works. And I'm certainly not going to do it at a company where the internet is in a different building. Mm. I mean, we had Condé Nast and Condé Net. And, <laughs> um, and, 
So I was approached about this very unglamorous job in Los Angeles working for this big comparison search site. And I kept demurring and I was about to get married. And not that I was felt snobbish about it. I was just like, I don't really know anything about the internet. And I live in New York. And um, do you what made them seek you out? I, I don't mean that in the insulting no, way it sounds. It sounds. I'm, how did you get on their radar? Through another magazine friend's husband who had been, he was the former COO of Shopzilla. And we used to talk at parties, mm-hmm. at Lucky Magazine parties. And he, he was like, what are you guys doing online? And, you know, he was in that space. So he recommended me. And so anyway, I kept talking to my, the man who became my boss, like he was so persistent and I love talking about stuff like that anyway. So I'd write him memo after memo and be like, you should do this and, and go talk to these people. Maybe they'd want to do this. And he ultimately was like, just what are you waiting for? And I was like, I don't know, because quite honestly, if I stay here, I will be screwed. So ultimately he was like, you know, I'll teach, we'll teach you. And come. And I knew, you know, when you're evaluating any job, it's obviously it's the brand and what that might bring to your resume and it's your salary and equity or whatever that package looks like. But for me, and I think for anyone who's in their twenties and thirties, it should really be the education. And so he was offering me essentially a master's degree in the internet. And so I did it. And I was one of only a few creatives and it was all digital product people and UX and engineers and SEOs and SEMs. And they spoke a language I did not understand, but it was so Was it the one you just used? Yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, don't get me started on CAC and click through. And anyway, but it made me, I learned enough to be dangerous and to understand that the internet at scale looks nothing like our preferences. And it sort of made me check. Well, what does that mean? You know, you think about... You know, coming from brands and being and having really strong ideas about what pages should look like and how the information should be presented, I um, he was quick to point out to me that the most successful in the site, sites in the world, Google, Craigslist, Yahoo, mm-hmm. um, eBay, Amazon, are not very beautiful. Got it. And so I would want them to redesign these pages and they would run tests. They'd be like, we'll test yours. And then essentially <laughs> within an hour, they would A-B test it against the original. They would tell me how mine was on track to lose like $40,000 a day. Mm. And that was a really valuable lesson. Um, and a check on sort of not snobbery, but just your preferences mm-hmm. might not Aesthetics. be the preferences of everyone else. Yeah. Right. Well, right. It's kind of utility versus... Yeah. Beauty, the utility versus beauty, and um, and I think there's place for both, and and but it was a it was so fascinating to me, and it was also really interesting to understand how hard it is to build a brand, and how how hard it is to build a brand on top of a business versus building a business behind a brand. Mm-hmm. So when I met Gwyneth, who had a brand but no real business at that point, I was like, oh, this is you've done the hard part. You know, you've you've made something that people are fascinated by that has a distinct point of view. And now it's a question of organizing it and scaling it and figuring out how it's going to fund itself. So first of all, how did you meet her? And then at, at what point, like where, what was Goop when you met her? Yeah, so I met her through a, um, when I was at Lucky, I did a a lot of TV for them and I met this producer who became sort of a younger 
little sister. She was living in LA. I loved her. We had all these strange things in common. Like our moms had both had aneurysms when we were in high school and we'd both dated a malignant narcissist, you know, all the things that make you friends, <laughs> as you friends. know, because you have so many friends. Um, <laughs> and she was obsessed with goop. And I had noticed it. I knew it was around. I hadn't really looked at it. And she loved it and um, really wanted to go and work for Gwyneth. And so I was like, okay, I need to look at this if you love it so much. And I helped her write some emails to the then CEO, this man, really lovely guy named Seb. And Gwyneth was living in London. Well, I mean, she went and worked for Gwyneth. So... um, and lived sort of in the building next to her. And I had always been a ghostwriter, as you mentioned. And um, Tracy Anderson, who's a the celebrity workout trainer. Queen. Yeah, workout queen. She was working on a book or wanted to do a book. And so Britt put me in touch with Tracy. And I started working with her on her proposal. And then she was opening a studio in LA and Gwyneth's business partners with Tracy. And so the person I was, I started just writing all the positioning copy for her in the class descriptions. And I was like, I'm, I was super pregnant at the time and I'd never done a Tracy class. And I was like, how, what are they like? And so Gwyneth got on the phone with me. Um, and she, and she ultimately named all the classes, explained oh, everything wow. to me and described the space. She had worked on the design of it. And I was like, this is interesting that Gwyneth is, like in, interested in the details of how I'm describing an attained definition mm-hmm. math class. <laughs> and so that's how we met. And when she moved back to LA, I met her at the studio opening. I was 40 weeks pregnant. Which wow. Is exactly when you went to meet Gwyneth <laughs> yeah. Paltrow. You're probably feeling sleek and yeah, uh, saucy. I, like, I feel hot. And, um, <laughs> and then a few months after I had my baby, I went over to meet her and sit with her and talk to her about Goop. And at that point, it was just still a weekly newsletter. And there were some limited edition collaborations, but it was very lo-fi, which I think gave it a lot of charm. And she was essentially like, how do you scale editorial? Like, do I hire? What what does it look like? And so we sat and talked. And that was a question that she came up with on her own. Like, that was a goal of hers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was like, I want to do this. She was at a point, I think, of um, she'd been putting her own money into the company and she'd been at it for five years and had built this tremendous list Mm -hmm. with incredible engagement. But she was like, I don't, I want to do something with Mm this. Um, And so we, we talked for a long time and then I started working with her on some stuff. Not, I, I don't like to take jobs or go to companies unless I've done like 8,000 projects. Um, I wanted to make sure we were on the same page and that she liked how I write and mm-hmm. how I think about things and that we were really copacetic, particularly because it's we have become so entwined and very close. And and it's so int- the business is so intimate that I didn't want to make that leap and then have it be weird. Mm -hmm. Like it was all weird enough anyway. So, um, what part of it was weird? Just like going to work at this brand that was such a lightning rod for people. And we were working out of her house at that point. And I've worked with a lot of celebrities, so that's not weird to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
everything that we did. I mean, right after I started is when the conscious encoupling happened. And it's just, I'd never worked in a job where what I was doing was impacting. I mean, I'm not responsible for conscious uncoupling, but, but where the stuff that I was working on, like had big effect culturally. Mm -hmm. And also I'm wondering the level of scrutiny. Yeah, absolutely. And just like, and that was really fascinating to be like, wow, people feel so strongly about this and to just like, touch those nerve endings again mm-hmm. and again. You know, we're really like, we stroke that trigger point. Um, and that's fascinating. And to be part of that and witness to it is um, definitely strange. Does it ever bother you? Um, at the beginning, I was, it would panic me. I mean, I, and, um, you know, I didn't know how to handle it. Like it was really scary and felt like a ton of pressure. But, you know, to Gwyneth's credit, she is so strong, so fearless and um, really supportive. Like she doesn't pass that down in any Mm -hmm. way. So at no point in the history of the company has she ever turned around and said like, oh, this is your fault. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, she's very, there's a lot of pattern recognition because she's been, this has been happening to her for so long. Um, that she knows how to handle it. So she's sort of taught everyone at the company how to handle it, which is when it comes, you have to evaluate it. And the things that hurt are certain are things that you must hold against yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you need to look at that. But everything else is projection. And there's probably nothing in it for you. But that's a practice. Mm-hmm. But it's been such an important pra- – I think it's an essential practice for all women because I think our natural instinct is when someone criticizes us, it's like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. You know? Yeah, and you sit- backpedal. Let and- me sit down now. Like, right. it's terrifying. And I think that sh- the ire that she provokes is because she doesn't sit down. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm not going to give you blood. I know you just – you guys want me to bleed all over the place so you can put me back together. And, mm. um, and if she were to – quote unquote bleed all over the place what would that look like be, be i don't know like apologize apologize or, or um say oh i shouldn't be having these conversations right. what's my right like i don't have any place here i'm an mm-hmm. actress let me go get back in my actress box <laughs> um and yeah it's really it's really interesting and and she also, from pattern recognition, I mean, unconscious coupling is a good example of something that's a silly name, but an amazing concept. Mm-hmm. And but Conscious I, uncoupling. Conscious uncoupling. Yes, I should know it, right? <laughs> conscious uncoupling. But this idea of when she and Chris Martin divorced, they put out, she wanted to control the statement. And so she put it out on Goop. And essentially, they were saying to impart to allay all the rumors of reconciliation that would ultimately follow. Mm -hmm. We are going to try and stay a family and parent our children together. And we are not together romantically. And we just, there has to be a better way to divorce, which, you know, understandably when you think about it for all the people who experienced divorce, I haven't experienced it. My parents are still together. I'm sure it was very loaded with this idea of like, oh, you're doing it wrong Mm. or there's a better way to do it. You guys messed up, which wasn't the intent, but it's easy to understand how people feel triggered by that. 
but they're right. And now it's part of, it's kind of mainstream. Mm-hmm. Someone this morning was just telling me about how she separated and they have live next door and they have a staircase and it's been going great, which is not really what anyone wants to do. Let's be clear. When you get divorced from someone, it means that you don't want to be with them anymore, <laughs> right. which means you don't want to have Sunday brunch with them. But when you have children, mm-hmm. there are greater responsibilities than your own um, happiness in every moment of the day and your own comfort. Mm-hmm. So I think their point was we're going to put aside our preferences for our children and see if we can do this differently, which I think is a great idea. So, but you know, it, it gets, it, it got people stirred up. So when the criticism comes now, do you have a visceral response to it? Yeah, for sure. So still, still, yeah, no, I mean, even though I've been in it and I can feel other people's anxiety, you know, we just put out the goop lab on Netflix, which is a six part mini doc. And it's, we put out the trailer and it's a salacious trailer that Netflix made, but I, you know, I'm really proud of the show. I think it's great. I, and I was like, oh, this will be an interesting opportunity. Cause I think all the people who think that they think that they know who we are that has, and then that knowledge of us has been defined by edge case press about us might watch and be like, oh, I kind of like these people. Mm-hmm. Like this is actually making a lot of sense and this is fun. And, um, And so the press reaction when we lifted the embargo was just like rage and anger, Mm. the same stuff that people like to heap on us. And I wasn't really prepared for it because I thought it would be different. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I mean, the, the reason that it was anxiety provoking for me this time is that the team is on the show. And so suddenly all these people, like I'm used to it at this point, but all these people who bared their souls Mm -hmm. and cried and like put themselves out there um, and feel really attached are feeling, you know, they're feeling it coming at them. And Mm -hmm. so I felt protective of them. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are new to the company who haven't been through this pattern recognition with us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was hard. I had to... I had sort of like a bummer. I was in Miami and just like had a bummer day and then felt better the next day. And, and then that starts, then people start watching it and then people love the show and, and then there's a backlash to the backlash. Mm -hmm. And then the watchdogs come out, try to get some press and then, um, and then it's all mainstream. (laughs) Did you know that this year is the hundredth anniversary of the ratification of the 19th amendment, which gave American women the right to vote? It's crazy that it's only been a hundred years, which maybe sounds like a lot, but, uh, that's, uh, it's pretty recent. It's pretty recent that we've gotten this right. Um, I had extensive conversations with my mom about who are you going to vote for and the importance of voting. And it is baffling to me to think of all the women in my family who did not have that right. Women whose stories have become more, more 
real and more relatable to me thanks to the information that I found out through Ancestry. As we prepare for the 2020 election, look back at how far we've come. Just 100 years ago, women were not able to exercise their right to vote. Now, more women than ever ran for Congress and governor in the last election, and more women than ever are serving in the House and in the Senate. But we still have a ways to go. Today, we celebrate and build on the legacy of the women and men who fought for the suffrage movement. Whether they voted in their lifetime or never got the chance, learning the stories of past generations of women in your family through time gives them power. Discovering their stories allows us to connect their lives and experience to our lives today. Celebrating their strength and tenacity makes them count. Ancestry's collection of facts, stories, and records brings depth and nuance to this important time and reveals the women in your family who handed this legacy down to you. Learn their stories. Make them count at Ancestry. Go to Ancestry.com slash best friend to start exploring today. That's Ancestry.com slash best friend. Ancestry.com slash best friend. Ancestry.com slash best friend. What made you guys decide to do the TV show? We had been talking about it for a while. I think people had approached Gwyneth like every year. I mean, probably with more frequency than that wanting to do some sort of reality show or just wanting to see her. People really like to see her on the screen. Um, and so we had talked about it and kicked it around, but never felt ready. Like we just weren't grown up enough. We didn't have a big enough team. We didn't feel like we had our shit together um, to support something like that. And um, until, until we felt ready. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, it, it takes a minute. But yeah, there's just certain there's certain s- stories that need to be seen and certain things that are perfect for audio and certain things that are way better in text, you know? Mm-hmm. So for those things that you kind of want to watch, we didn't really have a place to put them or the budgets to make it right. without our nice friends at Netflix. <laughs> um, and how did you choose which would be the six episodes? So we had a pretty long working list and ultimately we wanted them, we wanted to do the range mm-hmm. to do, you know, like the, the longevity episode, like that's really at this point, quite mainstream science, although it takes so long, there's a real disconnect between mm-hmm. what's happening in science and research and what's practiced in medicine often. So, so that's the episode where three of you did change diet. your diet we changed our diet. Right. There's like a blood test that can measure your chronological age, your yeah. biological age, not your chronological age. And then you guys do three different diets and then take a blood test afterwards. And then also you do three different cosmetic we procedures. We three different, yeah, facial treatments. Yeah, cos- and a varying intensity. I got off the easiest by far. <laughs> and um, Cosmetic acupuncture. Yeah. But there, there were a hundred needles in your there face. There were a hundred needles. Did it, it was, hurt? No, so relaxing. <laughs> but... um. But yeah, no. So that we did that one with Walter Longo at USC and Morgan Levine at Yale, and um, and that one's power like fat. It, one of the Gwyneth did Prolon, which is the fast mimicking diets, mm-hmm. five days where you're, you sort of trick your body into thinking it's in a fat fast, and essentially it triggers autophagy, and your cells consume dead, damaged cells, and there is incredible. Like he, he is a whole institute. He doesn't benefit financially. Longo doesn't benefit financially from 
the FAS, all of his proceeds, fund an institute that doesn't actually pay for his research Mm -hmm. so that there's really no conflict of interest. But the clinical trials on it are incredible in combination with things like chemo for diabetes. Um, So that's mainstream. I'm sure. And still people reacted. Mm -hmm. Um, I did the... For those who want to know, I did pescatarian, the pescatarian. Right? Well, I did vegan plus fish. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so no, no dairy. dairy. And um, and I I came in second. I, I did well. I don't mm-hmm. want to give too many things away. And then yeah. and then Wendy did vegan. Um, but but yeah, it was so that there was that which we thought would appeal to a certain type of person. And then we wanted to do something strange to push and. You know, we people always accuse us of pseudoscience. I don't think they understand what the definition of pseudoscience is, which is presenting things as having a scientific basis when they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, it's like presenting fake science, um, which is not what we do. We're very clear in on the site and in what we say. Yeah, there's really amazing clinical research about this, or we don't know what the fuck is happening. Mm-hmm. But just because we don't, we lack the language, or it hasn't been studied, or put through a you know double blind clinical trial and been peer reviewed, doesn't mean that it's not real, or that something's not happening. We just don't have the language or don't have the tools to measure it. So that was the energy healing episode um, with John Amaral, which is so weird. I mean, I don't understand it. I don't know what happened to me. Um, but it's real. Like I, it's, yeah, it's that one. And the, but I should say, I I did love the show, the episode and I'm with Betty Dodson. Yeah. Like almost made me cry. It was real vaginal monologues territory. You I guys know. were in that. I cried. I cry every time I watch that. episode. Yeah. It's very, it's, it sneaks up on you and then it's super powerful. Like I watched yeah. it with my husband for him too. Yeah. Um, but the ones that I think triggered my skepticism the most were Reiki and the psychic mediums. Yeah, of course. So with the Reiki one, I was like, is is he touching them before lifting his hand up in any way so that he, on some level you know where his hand is? No? It's so crazy. It was so weird. And we had done it. It kind of came together at the last minute. And so for people who haven't seen it, Essentially, he works on four people at once, and you are face down in a bed. There's a hole, so you're like a massage table, like a massage table, and there's a drape, and you can see your hands on this pad, but you don't really know where he is. Occasionally, you'll see his feet, Um, and at a certain point, you flip over and your eyes are closed, but and you. But you just you're there, and so the first time we we sort of did a because they didn't know how to shoot it, so we did it the night before, two days before, the night before. Um, I had never done it. I didn't know what would happen. Not everyone has movements. Mm-hmm. Um, like Janae was not moving that much, but crying. And then she ended up p- literally puking, um, at that night. I, so I was there and for the first 20 or 30 minutes, the first time nothing happened. And I was like, Oh Jesus, you know, I'm having a panic attack because, um, I'm an executive producer on the show, and I have no idea what's happening in the room mm-hmm. if anyone else is moving. and Oh, were you thinking like, oh, no, the whole thing might be a bust? Yeah, I was like, there's nothing to show here, people. <laughs> and I, so I was just like, God, like, 
fuck, we'll think of something else. And that's so interesting. You had to be in two places at once. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm there and he comes over to me again. And this time he was like touching my neck and it was like he was pulling out pins. And so he pulled out pins and I was like, I don't know what he's doing. (laughs) And, um, and then he pulled out a pin and my, I started spinning. I started, um, like disassociating from my body. I started puking. I have this on tape too. Retching. Sounds awful. Yeah. And when I talked to him and then I started moving and I was still head down and he was pulling, it was like he was manipulating. He apparently my energy field is out far. Like our energy fields are all different. Mm. And so he sort of figured out where mine was. And then I started lifting. And then the weirdest thing is to watch it on tape because you don't know where he is Mm -hmm. and you watch it and you're like, you're moving as his hand is moving. Or there was one, she didn't want her face shown, but the woman who's literally like slithering like a snake, um, she has MS. And so she didn't want to show her face and be identified. And, um, but her, I mean, she was like almost falling off the table Mm -hmm. in response to his hands. It was crazy. Easy and like complete response, just like right, like a puppet, and she felt amazing after. It was like so much um, bottled energy that she released. She she's always sort of trembly, and she was calm. Like I've never mm. seen her not moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know what it is. I just know I have a massive block. I know why I have a block in my you know lower back sacral chakra. I know I have sexual trauma and like every woman. Um, and that's, it's like every time it's like I, my back goes up and I'm stuck there. I can't move. It's weird. It's weird as hell. What was your relationship to this kind of stuff prior to working at Goop? And this, mm. I don't really know. I don't yeah. know what to call it. More out there kind of things. More out there types of things. I mean, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. I grew up in his office, typing his dictation, going to the hospital, watching procedures, um, understanding to some extent the limits of our healthcare system. Also feeling like, you know, particularly when I was typing dictation, I was always like, why do you call it a pneumothorax? Like, why isn't it just a collapsed lung? Like, mm-hmm. why is there this whole language? And I think that I... I whether it's legalese or the way, the way that science is re, re, is researched and reported, there is a barrier to entry. I'm like, it, that's unnecessary. I wish that it weren't mm-hmm. like that because I feel like that's part of the reason that we're in this weird anti-authority authority place of um, where people can't access the information mm-hmm. or they don't know how to decipher it correctly. Um, so anyway, so I grew up in that environment. I'd had... Um, I went to an acupuncturist in New York for my anxiety, who was amazing. Actually, we work with her at Goop, um, incidentally. And I also went to an acupuncturist to help me with fertility in New York. And that sort of had been it. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to LA and started working at Goop, I I met an intuitive and was sort of introduced and a little surprised by what she told me. And I went and did my chart with this woman, Jennifer Freed, who's become a very dear friend and, again, and is a psychologist who does astrology and runs, she runs this nonprofit. And again, I was like, this is weird. Like, it's weird <laughs> to talk to someone and have them tell you all of these things about yourself. Um, 
that are there so specific and true, mm-hmm. not nothing groundbreaking, but just like to have someone hold up a mirror is an interesting feeling. And then three years ago, a little under three years ago, my brother's husband died in his sleep and he was my closest friend. And, um, I had through a number of random coincidences, I felt like my soul had prepared me. Like I had been working on a package about death mm. and, I wanted to be practical because it's the one thing that no one wants to talk about, but yet it's the one inevitability in life. And so I wanted to do a package about life insurance. And Was this for Goop? This is for Goop. And sort of the nitty gritty details of being prepared. And in that process, I was gathering books and this flagged email showed up in my inbox and I hadn't flagged it. And I was like, why? This is so weird. And um, what is this? And it was Outer Limits Radio. I never, it was a listserv about paranormal events. It was like, it, who is Ann Kearney, the reincarnation? Is Ann Curry the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln? It was so bad. Ann Curry? Yeah. And um, <laughs> she might be. She might be. We don't know. And so I was like, why, what is this? Yeah. And so I was scrolling through it and there was an interview um, with this oncologist, Dr. Jeffrey Long about near-death experiences. And um, I was like, I'm, I'm going to listen to this. And he is this, he's a cancer doctor who would hear these accounts of people having these near-death experiences. And he created this website, this essentially just a, a portal for people to submit their near-death experiences. And they're translated they're from all over the globe. And he would essentially try to put together a study to understand how they were similar. And I was like, this is really interesting. So I, call, I called the publicist of his book to get his book in. And she was like, oh, I've been trying to reach you. I have this other book about um, resuscitation. It was about, it's called Erasing Death, and it's about resuscitation care. Because if you die, if you need an ambulance in certain parts of the country, you're much more likely to die. Mm-hmm. So it's about resuscitation science and medicine, and just what's when is when when is someone really truly dead? Mm-hmm. And it was this guy Samparnia who's trying to set up this. He's set up a number of studies for near-death experiences. Anyway, I went so deep into the subculture and I was like, this is really interesting. And actually, this is the biggest question of the day. Um, And then Peter died. And I felt prepared. I literally had the stack of books to bring home to start working on this (laughs) death package. And I was going to bring them home on a Friday and he died on Sunday. And I, um, one of the books I had gathered that had been sent to me was... The Light Between Us by Laura Lynn Jackson, who's in this episode six of the show. It's a psychic medium. And so I used my poll to, <laughs> after Peter died, I reached out to her publicist and I was like, you know, I'd like to interview her for this package. And if she's in Long Island, I'm going to be at Gwyneth's house and maybe we can meet. So she, we got on the phone. This is, I was out in Long Island and she came the next day and did a reading for Gwyneth and read someone on staff who I like was a total cold reading. We did a video of it. She, they met on camera. And um, it was the craziest experience of my life. So she, we, we were just chatting. And then I asked her a question, like, when is a sign is a sign? Like, when, how do you know that that butterfly is really a, you know, message from your right. mother? And, you know, I was like, because I think I get signs, but I don't know. And she said, you know, I have someone here. 
um, do you want me to bring him through? And I was like, yes, please. And it was like having a conversation with Peter. Wow. It was wild. I mean, the conversations that were had the day he died, the conversations that had happened since the cause of his death, we thought it was, um, just a heart attack. And she was like, no, his heart exploded. And it turned out that that was kind of what happened. Mm -hmm. He had a rare, um, autoimmune disease undetected. Um, she knew everything about their dog, what was happening with their dog, the name of their dog, that he was going to have a park named after him in New York City happened. Um, just on and on and on. And then delivered in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Jokes, inside jokes. Um, and so for me, that was really foundational. And And then the next day when she came and read for Gwyneth, like things that, like it was so specific about objects and events. Um, and when she read Erica, our CFO on video, whose brother had died in a helicopter crash, I mean, like just everything, the names mm-hmm. of her cats, how, where they were in the house, where he would come and see them. So for me, it was just like, it's like kind of like understanding the, the bar in the closet where you, that you hang the rest of your life on. I know mm-hmm. that sounds like a weird... Let me try to explain that. It just reframed my whole perspective of life. Because if, if, if we're energy, if, we, if, if the, theory of, the two prevailing theories of consciousness are the, the materialist view, which actually makes no sense, which is that we are all generating consciousness out of our brains and somehow having the same experience and that everything can be explained by the brain. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's that, that's the materialist. And then the other view is the filter view, which is that our brain's filtering a bigger reality and mm-hmm. that, um, and that we have something that is not of matter, mm-hmm. you know, that we're spiritual beings having a physical experience, which makes kind of a lot more sense mm-hmm. when I, I don't know. I've always been, um, some of my listeners have heard me tell this story before, <clears throat> but I grew up very... Um, just atheist. Like, mm-hmm. there's nothing, and mm-hmm. when you die, that's it. Yeah. It's just always what kind of made the most sense to me. I wasn't bummed about it. I mean, there were times where I thought, I wish I wish I could believe in something more, but for the most part, it didn't bother me. But then um, a friend of mine died, and mm. it, it affected me very, very deeply. And I was driving home from therapy, and I had this kind of this spiral where I started thinking, but wait a minute we can't explain consciousness. Mm -hmm. Like we don't really know what consciousness is. So how do we know? Like if, if there, you know, that's kind of a miracle. So how can I be so sure Mm -hmm. in everything? I'm losing the ability to articulate it. Um, How do, how do we know that that goes away? How do we know that that doesn't persist? Um, Or whether it's like the same consciousness, which I, in my gut, I think that that probably doesn't persist, but this idea that we are energy and that that doesn't go away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all of a sudden I started questioning everything in, but it was in that, like that hour I started feeling like, you know, reality was like melting. Yeah. Um, and now I guess I'm, I'm a bit less sure. Yeah. I mean, the brain is a black box. Like we don't know where memories are stored. We know nothing really about it. And, um, so, but exactly. And it's the one question we'll never answer, but, the reason that I think it's powerful, not only because it's a solve for grief, like it really is truly, I think, helpful and there's nothing 
harmful in feeling like I can talk to Peter, commune with Peter, ask him for help. Um, I miss him deeply, Mm -hmm. but I still feel connected to him. And so, you know, as Caitlin says in the show, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling closer to my dead mother. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that, but also for me, at least it's like, okay, this is the closet realm. This is life. And we're here sort of in earth school and maybe it's part of a bigger context and we should use our time. Yes. We could just use our time here. Just like run down the clock meaning making or doing whatever. But if you put it into a context of like, maybe it's about evolving and changing and shifting and growing and learning the lessons. So you're not repeating the same patterns and growing, um, bringing more love, whatever it is, like, is that so bad? So Mm -hmm. for me, it's been really helpful construct of, um, feeling like I need to use my time well. Mm -hmm. That's something that stresses me out. This, this feeling that, especially if I do believe that there's not, not necessarily, but I'm not, well, I'm not going to personally experience anything more. This idea that you have a finite number of days and I spend so many of them just kind of going through the motions. And yes, I, I do. I love my kids. I love my husband. I love my life, all that stuff, but I'm not in I don't sit in, I sound goopy right now a little bit. <laughs> I don't sit in gratitude all the time, you know? Who There's, does? Right. There's plenty of days where I'm like, I just got to get, you know, I wake up and I'm like, I just got to get to this time and then I can get back in bed. Um, and I don't, I would rather, you know, be relishing my time and cherishing my time and all that stuff. Where are you with all of that? Oh, I'm in the same place. I mean, I think we we are such a culture of doing and I am that way too. It's sort of this like, you know, just this output productive, you know, yada, yada. Like we turn as you turn self-care into a thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I am in that boat where I'm like, there's no space. Like I have no space. I have no time. I just want to sit on my butt and like let it spread in front of the TV. <laughs> you know, I just want to like, and I do that. Um, but <laughs> Um, and I certainly am not remotely perfect. I mean, I'm not even trying to be perfect and I'm tired. It's like, we need rest. Mm -hmm. We need more being less doing. Um, and I think that that's where we, I guess that's where I find that sort of belief to be good too. Um, is that it's not out there. Like it's in Mm -hmm. here. Like we all need to like get closer to ourselves, like look under the hood. Um, even when it comes to things that trigger us, like, why is that so upsetting to me? Mm -hmm. Like, what is that stirring in me? Or why do I feel scared? Um, and like, we all need to sort of in a way come home, um, and like be in our bodies and yeah, sure. Like ideally be more present with our kids and enjoy that. But I think part of what we're seeing is that people don't know how to, be anymore. Mm -hmm. And there is no rest. There's no, they don't want to be in their bodies. You know, it's a lot of us, I think have disassociated from trauma or pain or, um, I don't, you know, people it's fucked up for a lot of people out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I think that's why you see people like lurk, trying to figure out where they can attach, you know, whether scrolling. it's scrolling. Yeah. Looking for re- whether it's religion or yeah, the internet or drugs or self care or orthorexia, like whatever it is, like it's, we, 
we all need to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, you grew up in Montana. Mm-hmm. Dad was a doctor. Mom was a nurse. What was your, you have an older brother, older or younger, older, older. right? Um, is it just the two of you guys? Yeah. And what was your childhood like? So my childhood was kind of lonely. I grew up, uh, you know, in Montana, which is beautiful outside of town. Um, and I spent a lot of time in nature and we had, it was amazing. We had horses and land and not a lot of friends. Um, I spent a lot of time reading because you didn't fit in in the town or there just weren't many people. There weren't many people around and it was just, it was, you know, I don't know if you grew up with like benign neglect, but there was a lot. I grew up with all sorts of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) No, my mom wasn't running us around town to play dates. And we Mm -hmm. went to this small hippie alternative school, which was amazing, but there were only like six of us per grade. Oh, wow. So it was very familial. And um, so I hung out with those people, but it's not like I was continually being exposed to new people or Mm -hmm. put into that situation. Um, so I've always been kind of introverted and it's not easy for me to make friends the way that it's easy for you to make friends. This is a reference to the name of my show, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so yeah, so I, I just, I read, my mom has like an aversion to the word boredom, you know, in that she thinks life is both boring and that you should be able to entertain yourself. Mm So that was, that was what I did. And there was a lot of doing in my childhood too, like a lot of. Reading, so you weren't allowed like not to allowed sit to, and spread. I wasn't allowed <laughs> to sit and spread. I mean, my dad would shame us if he came home and we were watching TV. And what would he say? I'm so disappointed. Oh. Yeah, that it's a beautiful day and you guys are down here watching TV. Wow. I'm so disappointed. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's heavy. That's intense. Yeah. Really intense, right? Yeah. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Um, ashamed. Yeah. No, I think I have, I drive myself like this in part because my parents were compulsive, you know, both kind of workaholics in their Mm -hmm. own way. Although my dad has become like a very good TV watcher, just like (laughs) to point out in his retirement. But, you know, I think it came out of concern for us and Mm -hmm. wanting to be sure that we would be successful and thrive. And that was sort of at war with this, you can be whatever you want. And, like there were, there was a lot of that tension in my family, mm-hmm. like, but make sure you can pay your bills. Did your parents have anxiety? Yes. Not so much my dad. My dad actually is pretty chill. My dad just has a, my dad's pretty judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, so there was that, like he brought a lot of that. I don't mm-hmm. know where exactly it came from. My mom has a tremendous amount of anxiety. They both grew up without money. My dad's South African. So when you're white and you're South African, you have a lot more than Mm -hmm. at that time growing up in apartheid than black South Africans. But he grew up with no money. Um, And my mom grew up in the oldest of seven kids in poverty in Iowa and a big Catholic family. So she has deep anxieties about money and security and um whether and it's just pervasive and completely irrational mm-hmm. you know my dad's a doctor my parents don't spend much money so they're fine um and yet like she still she'll just sort of ruminate on end of life and like what happens if we're both in a nursing home and we don't want to be a, you know it's just insane mm-hmm. anxiety about things that are not going to happen but she definitely transferred a lot of that to me. Um, and I think that's also why I 
work as hard as I do and will never feel safe. Oh, well, I will because I'm working on it. <laughs> right. You th- you think that's why, just because you sort of inherited yeah, that it's in the water. catastrophizing. Yeah. And I think we're all so sensitive and empathic. And I think we pick up, you know, as kids, we pick up on that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be spoken. Mm-hmm. Like you can feel it. Um, and and my mom would speak it anyways. And it was always a little erratic. She'd be like, here's, I'm going to write you a check. And then, you know, the next day I was like, how are you going to pay your cell phone bill? Um, so yeah, pass it on. And and it's funny. I was like a little freaked out because I try and break those patterns. And my, my six-year-old found, I'd given him $5 for a bake scale, bake sale at school because everyone needs $5 worth of cookies at school. <laughs> and he found it. We were driving and and he was like, oh, I found this money. And I was like, oh, we'll keep it. Like you can buy a toy or an ice cream and you know, you could save it. And, and he was like, I'm going to save it in case our family needs the money. <laughs> oh, like, oh, wow. God. I was like, don't worry. You're, you're good. I got, yeah. I've got you for 13 more years. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, these things I think run deep. Mm-hmm. So childhood where you were made to feel bad if you just, kicked back and relaxed. Yep. Um, and then did you go to boarding school? I did. I went to public high school for a year in Montana. And then I went to boarding school in New Hampshire at St. Paul's. There's this long um, history. There's a cook, It's called the Cook Scholarship. And they randomly, it was set up for two Montana kids mm-hmm. to go to St. Paul's and then to college. And... Originally, it was to Harvard, and then it became college of your choice. And my brother, my older brother, won the scholarship. So he went, and then I applied for the scholarship, and they told me that they wouldn't hold it against me, that my brother had won. And then that was the only year that they gave one, not to me, and Mm. made me the finalist or the backup. And so I refused to go because I didn't feel like my parents should have to pay for me when they didn't pay for my brother and... I, I was just offended mm-hmm. and competitive um, and probably embarrassed. And so I went to public high school for a year, and then my parents sort of intervened and um, really pushed me to go. And so two weeks before school started, my sophomore year, my mom called, and someone had decided not to come back. And the person who didn't come back had a partial merit scholarship, and so they gave it to me and... And I got in a car. My mom drove me to New Hampshire. What was that like being away from home at that age? Um, you were 15? I was 15. It was amazing. I was always kind of a big little kid. And what hyper- does that mean? Just like I never was like a total child. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I was always a little overly responsible mm-hmm. and very precocious and as I mentioned, I like spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time with adults and, um, and I was comfortable being in like kind of lonely environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved it. I didn't have any friends for six months, which was fine. I just didn't want to like, there's a whole noob hazing culture in boarding school. And mm-hmm. I was like, I don't really care. Like, whatever. <laughs> and so I just wait. I just bided my time until I made some friends through forced exposure. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and uh, I just wouldn't do it. I was like, I'm not going to be a noob. I'm not going to like kiss these girls' mm-hmm. butts. I'm just not going to do it. And um, it worked out. But yeah, it was amazing. Like an incredible school, so many resources. Um, it was, I was really far behind. I was very far ahead in math. Mm-hmm. Um, you were a mathlete. I was a mathlete. It's on your website. Yeah. <laughs> I was a math. I went to the, the national mathlete competition in Washington, DC. Um, so I was taking, I had taken, and that was one of the reasons I needed to go away to school. I was going to have to go to college for math my sophomore year of high school. And I had taken, I was done with calculus. I was done with AB calc, BC calc. So then I did like linear algebra, I think my sophomore year. I don't remember, but I was a dork. So (laughs) I did. So that was great because I could do that. And Mm -hmm. um, even though I haven't taken any math classes since high school. You got it all in. I got it all in. You're good. done. Yeah. (laughs) But um, so it was fun. And it it took a lot of pressure off of my relationship with my parents because they didn't have to police me or worry about me. And roads are icy in Montana. And we liked keg parties. So... (laughs) Um, yeah, that's the other thing. I'd gotten like two citations from the police for going to keggers. I was a good kid, but mm-hmm. you just like got into trouble in Montana. Right. Cause there's nothing to do. Yeah. I have a friend, my high school friend, um, lived in Kansas for a year and I forget what year of high school, but that's when like she did acid for the yeah. first time or I don't know if she's done it since, but it was like, yeah, everyone does that in Kansas. There's yeah. just nothing else to do. There's nothing else to <laughs> she do. She had a crazy year. Yeah, no, I like, and now, now in like Montana, like things like math are big problems, mm. but yeah, I think a lot of it comes from boredom. And then did you go to Yale? And then I went How to Yale. How was that? Uh, <laughs> one of my coworkers is like, Yale's going to sue you for defamation and you're never going to get your kids into college. Um, it was fine. I mean, I didn't, ultimately it wasn't the right school for me. I wish I'd gone to a small school. Mm -hmm. Um, Like actually I was going to apply to Pomona. I got into Yale early. Um, I, you know, I think I would have been happier at like Kenyon. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, it's a big school. The priority isn't on teaching. It's on research. And I had some amazing teachers there and classes, but I just couldn't really connect. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be... With academics or with the students? With te- with the professors. I mean, some of them I did. I did a double major in, in art, actually, because there's an incredible MFA program at Yale with all these visiting artists. And that was amazing because the graduate students were incredible and you could just go to the studio and work. And I'm not an artist and I never wanted to be, but I just to have something to really pour myself into, I couldn't find anything else at Yale to really do that with. Mm -hmm. Um, And socially I found Yale to be very, um, again, I'm not good at making friends. Mm -hmm. And so I found it to be full of a lot of flag waving. There was a lot of self-identification. And so a lot of like, I'm a, like preppy rower and I'm a, (laughs) you know, I'm a rugby player Mm -hmm. and, um, or I'm a theater student. Mm -hmm. It just, I found it. What were you? Like nothing. I don't know. Yeah. Like a random girl. (laughs) And, um, I just couldn't, I could, I just struggled Mm -hmm. socially. So I was just going to New York every weekend and just kind of kept to myself. And I have a few really great friends, but it was lonely for me. I just, I would have done better at a smaller Mm -hmm. school. 
Do you, um, and meaningless, like, I don't know that I learned that much Mm -hmm. and I don't think it really matter. I know I can say this from a place of privilege because I went to Yale, but like, I don't think it really matters where you go to school. It's been irrelevant. That's been a weird, that's been a weird, uh, uh, innocence lost thing for me to learn that like, oh, it, it, since graduating Pomona, which many people have not heard of, but it is a good school. It's a really good school. Uh, Zero, I'm not exaggerating. Zero people have cared or asked me where I went. It never, ever, never. ever came up in a job interview ever. Yeah. It, like really, and I remember, you know, and things like thinking your major matters or what grade you got in this. Like it really doesn't matter. That being said, for myself, I'm really glad I went. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I couldn't tell you where. I only know where one person on my team went to school because she's on the board, so she goes like back. She mm-hmm. she went to Colgate. Um. But I don't think even everyone on my team has graduated from college. Which, when you're in college, you can't imagine. are told that it will have a huge, huge, huge impact. impact. Yeah. Uh, but I think there is this, well, at least in comedy writing, there's this idea that Yale, Harvard, mm-hmm. you know, going to those schools helps you career-wise. H- have, had, did you make connections at Yale? Did any of that do anything for you? No, not really. I mean... It's funny. I just was with someone I went to Yale with who I didn't know that well, but I always really liked her. I just saw her right before I came to you. And she was an English major with me. And she ultimately went to med school and has now become, she's a psychiatrist. She went to Columbia and then sort of rejected that paradigm and is um, much more functional and holistic and um, really smart and interesting. And we were just talking about Yale and just sort of how I don't know. I think it's one I think it's one of those things where you can do that. Like you can follow the the track mm-hmm. of like the network track out of Yale or you know Harvard or any one of those schools or you can sort of take a right turn. Like you just detour off mm-hmm. and that's what I've chosen to do. I'm I'm definitely a huge fan of St. Paul's and um, what that did for me and that community, but um, and those people are my family. Mm-hmm. But for college, no, it's never been relevant ever. No one has, as you mentioned, no one. Your has, employer will never talk about it. No, <laughs> and um, yeah. Did you always want to go into magazines? Uh, no, I didn't even think it was possible. I mean, I grew up reading magazines and loving magazines and being completely like glamorized by W and interview and Vogue. And did you ever read teen and 17? Yeah. Okay. But only when I was like 12, right? Like you read those things when you're younger. Yeah. Younger. Um, but I thought that that world was not certainly not available to me. It felt so glamorous. And then when I went to boarding school at a friend whose family was in magazines, and then I realized it was, you know, that it's sort of intentional. It's like a woman's, they run it like a, or they were running Condé sort of like as though you lived in a woman's dormitory on the Upper East Side. And I was like, I can't make $22,000 a year in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think media, Condé in particular, was um, just managed to keep it, you know, their teams to white affluent mm-hmm. girls. Yeah. Because the barrier you can't live you can't live you need family Um, money yeah Yeah. and i ended up getting a job where i was freelance and hourly 
And so I managed to make like double that. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I afforded to have that job. But I assumed I could never work in media. My brother's a book editor and it's kind of, it's similarly dire, but I think they're slightly better. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least if you go and be, if you're a book editor, there's no expectation that you're going to be stylish, you know, (laughs) and have an Hermes watch and the right shoes. Mm -hmm. And And you felt that at Condé? Yeah. Because a timeout in New York, that was not there. No, which makes timeout awesome. I mean, timeout was the, I'd say it it was the biggest talent mill. Mm -hmm. Everyone who kind of everyone had he was really good yeah. had gone through time out i just had joel stein on the show I and he saw that. mentioned that he had spent a lot of time with you but then that didn't make it into the yeah. book but he had worked at time out in new york yeah i love joel yeah me too he's amazing yeah um i need i need a joel stein fix um yeah, no. So at Condé, for sure, I definitely mm-hmm. and you're you borrow clothes and but there's a certain aspect you know it's a certain expectation that you're going to look and dress a certain way, um, which is lame. I mean, it's not like that anymore. I don't even know who works there anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, it media was, I think, women's magazines were deeply problematic. And then that's why you would end up with, you know, then you had Ebony and Essence and this complete segregation in women's media, which was, you look back at it like so weird you know, but the, the people working at magazines were generally affluent white girls who went to the right schools. Well, now I think people, I think there's this idea that goop is like that. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. My throat just made a sound. Uh, I didn't notice you didn't. Okay. Um, but in watching goop lab, there is, there is diversity, Mm -hmm. but I do think that, um, there's this idea that it's maybe because of the price points of the stuff on the website mm-hmm. or I don't really know exactly. I think it's just Gwyneth. Yeah. I mean, cause there's not, it's, we sell, there's, there's clothing and jewelry that's really expensive and, but certainly no more, no, it's more accessible than what's in a lot of like what's in Vogue mm-hmm. um, or Barney's, but um, it's like a contemporary and I'm not saying it's, affordable. I need my discount. Um, but yeah, I think it's just that, you know, Gwyneth for a lot of people represents, you know, affluent sort of patrician Mm -hmm. luxury. Um, and so I think people just conflate the two. Why do you think she like, is how, how legit is that? I mean, she's just, she, she, she feels like royalty in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, she's just a little different, you know, she has exquisite taste all, and I think that she loves beautiful things. Um, and so I get it. I get, I completely understand that perspective. I think the other thing that's happened too in the culture is that, you know, we have this clean beauty shop. So we have a really rigorous, we do a rigorous screen so that we're not selling products that have ingredients that are known to be harmful to human health, which there's no regulation in the um, personal care industry. Last regulation was like 90 years ago. So the U.S. bans 11 ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, where there, the U- EU bans more than 1,400. So there's just no, it's a wild west. I mean, there are t- tens of thousands of chemicals that are used in all industries in America that have never been tested. Mm. So um, 
where, whereas in the UK, for example, to use a new chemical, you have to first prove that it's not harmful, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So anyway, so we have this clean beauty shop. We we make our own skincare. We sell other brands that are primarily these small businesses founded by women. And the reality is that when you use good ingredients, um, it's just more expensive, and we don't have economies of scale. So that that's a conversation that we have all the time. And unfortunately, I think in America, we've all been programmed to believe that things should be cheap, that we should just have tons of stuff Mm -hmm. and it should all be really cheap. And now we understand sort of the destruction that that's creating, um, you know, fast fashion, how horrible it is for the environment. And it's not, it's not good for any of us. So I think a lot of us, with some of it's just reprogramming to be like, okay, you know what, I'm going to buy like two things and they might be slightly more expensive, but they're well-made from a sustainable supply chain from people who should be working, um, not children, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that collectively we're all going through that of like a rethinking of should this thing be this cheap or is this, is it problematic that this sweater is nine 99, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the stuff on the site is, I'm not saying it's affordable, I think it's, um, but it's really well made and the ingredients that we use are really high quality and tested, you know? Um, and so that's hard. We can't compete. Like we can't compete with Procter and Gamble, but maybe someday. And I think what we also see our role, particularly in the personal care industry by sort of beating this drum about how women need, like use the R and D dollars to make efficacious, clean products. It's, can be done. Um, what we do when we make a lot of, of um, attention is that we increase the demand and then the R&D teams at P&G and all the other um, Unilever, et cetera, start meeting mm-hmm. those demands and then the market starts to shift. I mean, Walmart's the biggest purveyor of organic food in the country. And that pressure wow. didn't, that pressure came from that movement, you know? You earlier you said that you guys have your finger on the trigger. Yeah, um, I think you used slightly different words. I use something sexual. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but how conscious? Like how much before you guys publish something or put something out? How much are you thinking? Like, oh, people are going to lose their minds over this. We don't. It's unpredictable. Like we've done stuff to be intentionally trolly, and no one has really noticed. Oh, like what? Oh, like we did. Um, it was several years ago, but we did a conspiracy package. We did stories about UFOs and like alternate theories on, you know, the pyramids and that, that whole whatever. And no one noticed or cared. Oh, that's and, so interesting. Um, and but where we do get attention, which is sad, um, is whenever we do anything about women's reproductive organs, mm. it is so wild um, and so predictable. And we're all mired in the same sort of paternalistic debate about it. Um, and, or sorry, patriarchal debate about it. It's, it is, and, and you mentioned the Betty Dodson episode of Netflix, which I think is really moving, really sad, and really fucking revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And then it's really sad that it's revolutionary. It really is. It's pathetic. Like, 
for those of you who are listening, please watch the episode and then think about the fact that it's revolutionary to Can I, do you want, will I be giving it away if I say what no, it is? I think, so, I think people, there's a scene w- we, where you just see a bunch of vaginas, vulvas, vulvas. Yes. Oh, that's right. A vagina is just the birth canal. This was news to me. Yeah. You see a bunch of vulvas and it did make me go, Oh my God, mine is more normal than I thought. Yes. And it is weird that that is so revolutionary and political. Yeah. It shouldn't be. No. But it's true. Like, how many vaginas have, excuse me, how many vulvas have we all seen? Like, really not that many. No. And then the ones that are shown in porn, as described by Betty Dobson, have often been um, surgically surgically enhanced. enhanced. That was a surprise to me. I didn't. I didn't realize that. And that kind of makes me cringe. It's, cr- it's so cringeworthy. Yeah. I also think, you know, and I called it out in the show itself, this idea of having to look at vulvas is so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And um, so as it was, the scene was coming where it was like, are they actually going to show vulvas? Yeah, you, did, like, you guys did such a good job of creating tension because yeah. I'm like, they're not, I think I actually said to my husband, oh, they're not going to show it. Yeah. <laughs> No, and we did. Not only did we not show one, we showed many. And mm-hmm. um, and right at the same time, we had we we didn't actually make the candle with him, but Douglas Little, who has um, Heretic, he makes these really beautiful natural perfumes because perfume is actually really toxic because um, there's IP in there. So and there's phthalates to make the toxic the mm. scent adhere to you, mm-hmm. which is a plasticizer. So anyway, he makes really beautiful perfumes and he was working on, he makes some with us and he was working on this candle and Gwyneth was like, oh, this smells like a vagina. And, um, <laughs> and then they were laughing about it. And then he made this really beautiful candle and he says, and it says, this smells like my vagina. Mm-hmm. Did we, she say it smells like her vagina? No. Just a vagina. She was like, it smells like a vagina. And then they kept developing it and we sell that candle exclusively but it's a joke i mean obviously it just was meant as a sort of a subversive joke yeah um again so challenging these ideas that we have about women's genitals and how scared we are you know like they don't have teeth <laughs> um but but yeah that episode i loved that episode um it was also really interesting the way it was done in that you guys were talking about how to do the episode in the episode. Right. Was, I liked that a lot. Yeah. And it was funny because we didn't know what the episode was going to be. We, we filmed it and they filmed stuff that Gwyneth and I didn't even know they had filmed. I didn't know about the orgasm. And, um, and then we put it together and it's pretty much as you saw it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a real question about whether Netflix would let us mm. run it. And there was conversation there up and down. And ultimately they decided they also thought it was really important. Oh, good. And wanted to do it. Um, would, was your concern that their concern would be that it is pornography? Yeah. Or that they would think it was too salacious or they wouldn't mm-hmm. want to go there. Um and no, they got fully behind it. I mean, it became the marketing for the entire ep- the entire series. But yeah, I mean, those are these women's our sexual powers are very triggering, mm-hmm. both to women and to men. And we see that again and again and again. And it goes too to this idea of like who has agency over women's bodies mm-hmm. and who gets to be the authority. 
and who gets to decide what we do with our bodies um, and who gets to harness their power or deny their power. It's crazy. I mean, it is crazy to me that we're having conversations about abortion still um, and all of it, you know, who gets to be sexual and who doesn't. And it's, well, there was this, and I speak for myself. Uh, I had this feeling that we were headed in a different, I think many people did though, uh, in 2016, yep. this feeling that like we're headed to this progressive place. And then it just like, we all got pulled back. Yep. Exactly. Total whiplash. Mm-hmm. And I think what we also saw politics aside, um, I personally love Hillary. I think she's rad and competent and imperfect. And aren't we all? Um, and, but just so competent. Like I had no mm. fear about being Same. in her able hands. Um, but the whole, I don't like her, <laughs> which is, um, I think speaks to how so many of us, women in particular, ra- were raised on lack and scarcity mythology and this idea that there could only be one or if you get something Allison, that means I don't get it, which has been true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly for women of color. And um, then you have this response that women, we also are very guilty of, which is like, I don't like her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, white women did not turn out for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I was talking to Glennon Doyle about this, who's has a book coming out and in it, she was talking about watching this young girl on the sidelines of a soccer game who was full of herself. And she had this sort of visceral reaction to this girl of like Glennon did Glennon did like kind of rage and just like, Oh, I don't like her. And all the moms were sort of having a similar response. Mm -hmm. And then she stopped herself and was like, what's happening in my body. Right. And you know, like why is it so hard to see another woman succeed or be full of herself or be confident? And it, you know, it comes from that place of lack of not feeling like we were allowed to be that way. And like, Lori, I'm not allowed to have a voice. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have a voice. I didn't have opportunity. You shouldn't. And like Lori Gottlieb, who, that a psychiatrist who wrote, yeah, I had her on my show. Yeah. You should really talk to someone. She says, you know, what she tells her patients, envy shows you what you want. Mm -hmm. And so Glenn and I were talking about that. And she was like, you know, in that moment, um, envy, the thing about envy and women is that we don't know what we want because we can't even acknowledge that we have wants. Mm. And then it comes out as I don't like her. Yeah. And that's so true. So true. And I think we all like, particularly because I think the future, if it's going to be healthy, is dependent on women and the rise of the feminine and mothers and using our mothering to nurture the world and bring this all back to a more, (laughs) a more sane and safe place for everyone. Um, And we have to get behind each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to, stop and evaluate that I don't like her. Mm -hmm. Why? Right. What is it? Right. What permission is she giving herself that we're not giving ourselves? Exactly. Exactly. Like that to me seems like the most critical question of all. Elise, it was so nice catching up with you. 
I'm gonna. I want to. Let's get. Let's go. Let's drink. do it. I have to. I have to ask. Do you? Cons- I'm gonna now make you put yourself in a box that you don't want to put. Your- that you didn't want to put yourself in before. Do you consider yourself or like growing up? Did you feel like an outsider? Because mm-hmm. knowing you at Time Out in New York, I you always struck me as like very stylish, very put together, on top of her shit, like a popular girl. Oh, thank so you. So it's interesting to, but knowing how advanced, like no one can be that advanced in math and popular. Right, exactly. <laughs> so hearing about your background and now getting to know, like I feel like this is a more in-depth conversation than we ever had at yeah. Time Out. There just wasn't time to have No, there was no conversation. conversation 14 pages a week. <laughs> Jesus. Um, it's interesting to to sort of you know break through the facade a bit and find out that yeah. like i that the way you conceive of yourself is probably different than how i saw you yeah i think i'm i'm very introverted like a lot of people um and yeah i'm an outsider i don't i don't really want to be inside i mm-hmm. want to i i just i think there's a lot of a lot more power to be able in being objective and not being attached and I think the minute you're really attached to what people think about you or whether you're cool enough or pretty enough or whatever it is, like you're fucked. You no longer have control over your emotional health. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, maybe that's how I feel safe. But um, yeah, no, I think I, I'm i not a loner, but it's funny. My husband is a loner and we... We like say that being with each other is like being alone, but better. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I have friends. I like have amazing friends, but I don't care. I don't really care. Mm -hmm. Like I've never really been in a club. Were you in clubs? No. No. I don't, I was on the rowing team. Like I played on a couple sports teams. Um. And I was obviously a mathlete, mm-hmm. and that was a team sport. That's a team. <laughs> but um, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't in a secret society at Yale. I how prominent were they? They were really, really prominent. My senior year, like you, I guess you try and get into them your junior year. So senior year was a little. Not that I had many friends, but it was did feel a little lonely because people mm-hmm. were always doing shit in their tombs. I mean, it's so weird. <laughs> um, so weird. Yeah. But I don't know. I always like to fly a little bit more under mm-hmm. the radar. Thank you again. Tell every pl- plug, uh, whatever you'd like to plug. So watch the Goop Lab on Netflix. Thank you all. Um, I co-host the Goop podcast, which is also a conversation-based podcast. And then I'm at Elise Luna, not Instagram. I never go on Twitter. But it's spelled L-O-E-H-N-E-N. Yes. L-O-E. About this. Yes. Yeah. So it's spelled Elise, E-L-I-S-E, L-O-E-H-N-E-N. Um, yeah. And definitely listen. You mentioned it, but we didn't have a chance to talk about the Goop podcast. I was just listening to your episode with Ada Calhoun and oh relating God. very strongly. You should have her. She's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I received her book. So, well, it's an off-air conversation. I yeah. think they were pitching her to me, but then like they didn't follow up. So I should reach out to them. Um, yeah. How was it? Deter- I, I pretended I was going to end, but one more question. How do you guys decide which episodes Gwyneth hosts versus you? I pretty much just go full steam ahead and then she pops in when she really wants to do something. And then there are a few people, you know, like Oprah, where we go full court press to get 
her for mm-hmm. Gwyneth, but it's more sort of what she, what Gwyneth's interested in. And, and do you record them at the Goop offices? We record at Goop. Um, we work with Cadence 13, so we go to their studio in New York. I travel a fair amount for it, so I'll mm-hmm. go to Harvard and do four back-to-back um, episodes, or I'll go to San Francisco, or, mm-hmm. you know, so go to Duke. But, um, yeah, I'm primarily just in the office. You get really, really interesting guests. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, we try to mix it up and um, not just get people who are on press tours since then they make all the rounds. Right. Um, and then I try and go to people in order to get those who might otherwise mm-hmm. be unavailable. Right. Um, but as you know, with two kids, that's hard. It's hard. I know. Yeah. Do you just do it here? Uh I will occasionally go to the guest if that'll allow me to get a guest that I can't otherwise. Um, so I have this podcast and then I have another podcast called Childish, which I do with Greg Fitzsimmons and that's yeah. our parenting podcast. And that he's in Venice okay. or Santa Monica, his office is in Santa Monica. So that one, we go back and forth doing it here and there. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I do just record here. That's nice. So it's very nice. It's very nice. In my old place, the studio was in our dining room and we called it dining room studios. But when we bought this house, I loved that the studio was a separate structure. Yeah. Um, that's great. So yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Allison Rose. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe, download, tell a friend, leave a review. Five stars is my favorite number because that's the most. If they had six star reviews, that would be my favorite number. Listen to Childish. Um, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. And go to Allison Rosen for all other things and watch goop is it the goop lab lab. watch the goop lab and let me know what you think of the episode the specifically of the episode we talked about if it uh, made you cry as well elise thank you so much thanks so great catching up listeners thank you for listening i love you goodbye hey do you know about the allison rosen show we had a good time